We live in a very selective world. Uh, think about it. You can make choices about anything at any time, uh, whether it's something you purchase, right? You go into the store. I mean, half the time when Janet's sending me to the store, she goes, you know, pick up some chips. What kind? Because there's Lay's, there's Ruffles, there's Doritos. Oh, Doritos? You go on Cool Ranch? You go on Traditional? You know, you pick, you, you can have, you walk to a wall of decisions and choices. Everything's customizable, right? Uh, we talked before about there's that, that term curated. That's sort of like the term of the era, right? Everything's curated just for you. Your coffee isn't just coffee anymore. It's curated coffee. The content you get in your, in your uh, feed now uh, on your device, it's all curated just for you. Why? Because you have choices. You can make selections. And so we become very selective as people. Uh, you buy a car. What are you going to look at? Well, you're going to get the car with options. And what are the options? Well, it's going to be leather interior. It's going to be cloth. What kind of engine are you going to have? What are the size of the wheels? What kind of rims are there going to be on this thing? What color is it going to be? You're going to go with the deluxe paint job or not? You're going to have driver assist? By the way, the older I get, oh yeah, I'm going with driver assist. Sure. These days it's practically just sit in the car, turn it on, drives for you, shows up, you wake up, oh good, we're here. I mean, those are the options available to you. And we become selective. We can choose. What do we want? How do I want it? Uh, the, the, the various burger places have that whole idea. I think it was Burger King years ago. Your way, right? Your burger, your way, how you want it. It's all customized. And then what happens is we take that idea or, or element of our life and very easily as 21st century Americans, we apply it to everything else. But sadly, when we start applying that to God and the things of God things become very dangerous for us. It is really easy to just sort of select what you want to believe and what you don't. Um, For uh, many years, in many ways, people have been coming to the Bible that way. Well, I like that part of it. I don't like that part of it. Uh, Jefferson, you might recall, uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, the author of the Declaration of Independence, Uh, He's also the guy who has the Jeffersonian Bible. And essentially, he just went through the Bible, and if he didn't like that part, he took it out. Just axed it. Uh, Back in the 70s, there was a a group of scholars that got together. Uh, It was called the Jesus Seminar. And and what they did is they went through the entire, uh, all the Gospels, and they took the words of Jesus, and they came up with a color coding system. And for one color, it was, this is what Jesus said definitely said. Then the next color was, this is for what he probably did say. And then another color was for what he probably didn't say. And then the last color was for what he certainly never said. And when you kind of dial down on, these are scholars, right? These are New Testament scholars. What what criteria, what insight, what, what kind of grid did they use to make those decisions? And when you get down to the bottom of it, you know what it is? What they liked is what Jesus said. And what they didn't like is what he didn't say. Uh, It wasn't a a, a criteria. It was just sort of this thing they sucked out of their thumb and blew into the air and said, look at this. Um, It happens in our personal lives, though, too, doesn't it? We can become selective about the Lord's commands or about different elements of what Jesus describes about himself or about God. 
We can do that too. Well, this isn't the kind of thing where that's just out there and in here we would never do such a thing. No, we, we wrestle with that as well. And so today, the Apostle John is, is, is addressing really the danger of selective belief as we continue our series in 1 John. The danger of selective belief. And, and, and the truth is, when we have selective belief, we actually end up having a self-created reality. Uh, which is never a good idea. By the way, in, in the physical world, when people have a self-created reality, you know what they call them? Crazy. But we do that. Thank you. Exactly. But that's what, we, that's what happens spiritually, right? We, we kind of do this self-created reality. We have a self-created gospel. And sadly, what that means is we're now worshiping a self-created God. So go ahead, if you would, open to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And in honor of God's word, whether you're here or whether you're outside or whether you're at home with us, would you please stand and follow along as I read. 1 John, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open up this passage to us, that your Spirit would work to take our minds and to engage them in these words he's penned so that we would know you better, that we would grasp the gospel in a deeper way that we would also carry out our life in you in a way that isn't selective, in a way that doesn't just match our preferences or or our tastes, but instead comes about because we are submitting ourselves wholly to you because of the whole counsel of your word. We ask that you would do this in mighty, beautiful, gracious and sovereign ways in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So here again, the apostle 
John is calling our attention to, to the dangers of selective belief. And, and so we're going to outline these things and see that from here. And, and, and what we find is when we approach God with selective belief, the first thing that we would see is, is we reduce Christ's saving work. We reduce it down. We find that in verses 6 through 8. Uh, by reducing, what I mean is, and what, what John's drawing out here is that if this is the whole full testimony of what the Bible says about the person and work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of it, the tendency can be for selective belief to simply go, yeah, that part, I don't think so, that part, I don't think so, I'm just going here. This part I like. Everything else, not so much. Well, how did that come about here in, in, in what the Apostle John is dealing with. Well, he's referring to it here. If you notice, it says here in, in verse 6, this is the one, referring to Jesus, who came by the water and blood. The water and blood. What is he talking about there? What does that mean? And that, that might be one of the most challenging portions of the book here. Water and the blood. And there have been several suggestions for what this phrase means. What's, what's John referring to? Some have understood it to be referring to baptism and the Lord's table. Uh, however, there's really nowhere in Scripture where we see the term blood simply used to equate with the Lord's table. Uh, that's an element of what is described, but it's not this you know, one term meaning that particular thing. Um, no, instead, this passage uh, appears to be speaking of Things that happen in the life of Jesus, not, not some sort of symbolic representation of some kind. Others have understood uh, this expression to, to mean uh, and refer to Jesus' side as he hung on the cross. You'll recall that there was a spear that went into Christ's side. And, and at that point in time, uh, there was water and blood that came out. That's the description. That was the, the consequent appearance of blood and water from that moment. Um, and so, some like that. But the problem is, this is not really referring to simply that one event in Jesus' life. Um, you, you have the phrase here, this is the one who came by the water and blood, right? There's, there's something else going on here with that term to come, to enter into. That uh, seems to be describing more of Jesus' life as a whole. And, uh, and, and then, of course, it, it kind of breaks down because... Um, Apparently, you know, the insistence of the false teacher is that Jesus did not come by water and blood, just by the water. He only came by the water. And no one there at that time was insisting that somehow in that moment, out of the side of Jesus, only water flowed. So it just doesn't, doesn't seem to fit. And so after you, and there's other options here, but I think when we look at the passage itself, it's very clear in terms of the context, what John's dealing with, even the false teachers that he was addressing, that the water here refers to Jesus' baptism. He came. That was the beginning of his ministry. He came by the water. In that moment, he was baptized. That was the beginning of his public ministry. And the blood then would refer to his death on the cross. And, and this makes sense in terms of the context as well. Because here, it's a, it's a shorthand way of referring to the entire span of Jesus' ministry. And uh, there was a guy named Serinthius in the first century who was a Gnostic. So he was one of the leaders of the Gnostics at that time. And he would teach that the divine Christ came upon the human Jesus at his baptism. But then the divine Christ left Jesus 
prior to his death on the cross. Why would he say something like that? Well, because death on the cross was the most humiliating death known to anyone in the first century. So why would the victorious Lord come and die? Uh, Such a humiliating death. That makes no sense. So that part's rejected. And a way to get around it is to misinterpret and twist things and say, well, the Holy Spirit, remember the Holy Spirit? He descended at the baptism. But certainly it makes no sense that the victorious Savior would die in such a humiliating, scandalous way. And so that's what Serinthius taught. That was very popular with Gnostics. And here, this is a shorthand, vivid way for the Apostle John to say, "Uh uh-uh. He didn't just come by the water, the baptism. That was what he did in fulfilling God's law and in walking out his will in his life. But he also died. The blood is just as much a part of the good news as the baptism. They're both necessary. But John isn't content just to leave it at that. You'll notice then he launches into three witnesses. Hey, it's the Spirit who testifies because of the truth. And notice verse 7. For there are three that testify. What are the three? Verse 8. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. So now you've got the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, penned the stuff we're reading right now, right? This, this book of 1 John, through the Apostle John, the Spirit of God wrote this. But on top of that, the Spirit is testifying in that at the baptism, there was a, a way in which the Spirit descended. It gave uh, verification to this fact that Jesus was carrying out God's will, that he was uh, following God, and, and being also one who, who uh, was living the life we could never live. He was fulfilling every command uh, in our place perfectly. Um, the Spirit testified to that. But it's not just the Spirit, it's also the water and the blood. Why would three be a big deal? Who cares if there's three? Well, to them, it was a big deal because... Actually, in the Old Testament era, as well as in the New Testament era, in a courtroom setting, if you had witnesses, you needed to have two or three of them to make a a case in the courtroom. And for it to be a valid case, the three witnesses had to be there. But not only that, they also had to agree. And that's why verse 8, very clearly, what does he say here? Those three witnesses, the spirit and the water and the blood, the three of them agree together. So he's painting this picture of the courtroom. And, and he is saying, uh, these three in agreement, in other words, you don't have the chance to be selective in your belief. Because when you are selective in your belief, you are denying the gospel. You don't get to pick and choose. The gospel is not this sort of like little uh, buffet before you. Like, well, I like those. I don't like that. I like that. I don't like that. I remember, you know, when our kids were younger, I was always uh, baffled at the love that they had for cheese pizza. I'm just like, folks, what a waste. Like, really? That's it? And so, inevitably, for Jan and I, we would always, we'd order the adult pizza and the kids' pizza. Right? Because the adult pizza has the stuff on it. You know? Make it the meat lovers, for crying out loud. Load it. You know, no, we just like cheese, right? Well, that, theologically, that's what's happening here. It's, it's the Gnostics like, no, we just want this part. We don't like all the rest. 
And John's saying, frankly, it doesn't matter what you like or not. God is not your little, uh, you know, short order chef. Oh, you want some of this? I'll, sh- I'll serve it up for you. God is the ruler of all. He's the creator of all. We have sinned against him. His wrath abides upon us. And he has provided a way of salvation in Christ alone. But you can't just have a sliver of Jesus. You can't have your modified version of Jesus. You must have the whole Christ. And this is what he warns against. And it's a warning for us today too. We might think, well, I would never do that. I don't go there. Okay. There's several ways in which this happens today. One would be this. What parts of God's word are you kind of like, yeah, I guess so, okay. And what parts are you like, oh yeah, I love it. I love that part. We get selective, you know, especially when it argues our case, Right? How many a parent has been in the room and said, Hey, children, obey your parents. Of course, there's another passage that says, uh, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, whatever, I know. Obey your parents. We get selective. How about just earlier in this book? What's John been talking to us about? Well, look at uh, chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Huh. Why is that? He goes on to explain, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you're harboring hatred or resentment for a brother or sister in Jesus, you need to deal with that. I need to deal with that. We need to deal with that. Why? Well, it's important that we are reconciled to one another. But you know what? Why else? This is telling us because the way I interact with my brothers and sisters in Jesus, that is the manifestation, the real manifestation of my love for God. The meter for my love for God is not, oh yeah, me and God, we're fine, we're fine. You, I can't stand. <laughs> But God, I I love God. And the Lord's saying, "Um, you see that? That shows you don't love me. And if you say you love me and refuse to make every effort to reconcile with a brother or sister in Jesus, you are living a lie. We're selective. We do that all the time. And brothers and sisters, we need to repent of that. Because selective belief is very dangerous. There's another way we see this today. There's there's a movement that's growing right now. Um, Some would call it progressive Christianity. And uh, it's not really a new movement. So remember that Jesus seminar thing I told you about from the 70s? That thing's been around for a long time. Actually, you go farther back into the 30s and 40s, there was a guy named Machen. Uh, He's a Greek scholar. He had to start Westminster Theological Seminary because the Ivy League seminary that he taught at was embracing a bunch of selective beliefs. And, And it's been going on really since the first century on through to today. But the most kind of, kind of the new wrapping paper on the old present, you might say, has this title, Progressive Christianity. And uh, there are just several things that are held to that 
reflect this idea of selective belief. Um, there might be several themes. As a matter of fact, there's a guy named Michael, Michael Kruger who wrote a really helpful uh, book on this. It's more of a booklet, really. And it's entitled The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And I, if you're curious to learn more, I'd, I'd recommend it. So The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity by Michael Kruger. Uh, but but, but some, some of the themes that are, that are kind of thrown around. Here's one. Jesus is a model for living more than a redeemer or savior to be worshipped. You get that? So, he, so yeah, Jesus came and he's a model and we should follow him. But, but in terms of like redeemer, savior to be worshipped, whatever. I don't, that, maybe, maybe not. But the real thing is look how he lived and you can live that way too. See how positive it is? And, uh, and, and by the way, most of these things that are held to by those in this movement, they're partially true. <laughs> That's the, other thing. Aren't, the best lives are half-truths, aren't they? Right? You, just, you have a truth right there and you just go, Err, just a little bit. And then it becomes a lie. And, and, and so, of course, you know, has Jesus come to show us how to follow the Father? Yes. Uh, we're told in the Bible that he, you know, in Philippians, for example, you know, conduct yourself in this way as Jesus did, who emptied uh, himself to the, to, and became a servant. And, and in the same way, you too consider the needs of others as more important than yourself. So there it is. The Apostle Paul in Philippians calls us to follow Jesus' example. That's, that's true. But though we acknowledge that, is Jesus merely a moral example? No, he, he is God and he is to be worshipped. I mean, just... Think of it throughout the pages of Scripture. Many people worship Jesus. Uh, the, Mag- the Magi worship Jesus in Matthew 2. The disciples worship Jesus after he calms the sea. You'll recall that uh, the disciples worship Jesus after the resurrection. Uh, the man born blind worships Jesus. Every knee will bow and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 2 says. Uh, the angels worship Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. Do you realize the entire book of Revelation is essentially about the worship of Jesus? The whole thing. And then do you realize this? Jesus never once rejects this worship? Whoa. If he's not God and he's receiving worship, what does that make him? Um, news flash: When someone who's not God receives worship as God, they're crazy. Okay, they're to be avoided. They're certainly not a moral teacher. I mean, if you have that other account in in Revelation. I love that too, where where the angel is there. You remember that, and the apostle John. Uh, bows before the angel, and you can kind of see the angel just like, whoa, whoa, time out, Lord, that's, that's, it's not me. I mean, he, 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 don't, don't bow before me. I am a creature like you are. Jesus receives worship all the time because Jesus is God. Uh, there are other elements of, of, of this movement. Um, another one would be this. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. You know, okay. Well, again, um, 
you know, now you're getting to the thing of people are sinners. How much do we talk about that? You know, uh, is it important that people know they're sinners? Should we tell them that? Um, and here's the thing. Again, there's a partial truthfulness to this. The Christian message is not only about sin and brokenness. That's true. It's not only about that. Praise God. Um, you are a sinner is not all that should be said. And if that's all that's said, that is not the gospel. But again, what does Jesus say? Only those who sick need a physician. We've got to talk about the problem. Because if we don't, the solution has no meaning at all. I mean, think about a doctor. If, if, if they're there with a patient and the patient has a terminal illness and they refuse to tell them about it because it might hurt their feelings, what kind of doctor is that? I mean, that's a malpractice suit in the making right there. Why? Because there's no integrity. That's not being honest. It's not dealing with the real issue. So again, there's an element of truth to this in that there are some places that certainly it's all about that and nothing more. That's a distortion of the gospel. But at the same time, we need to realize that the solution for the problem is Christ crucified. He who had no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we can't reject the doctrine of sin. We can't downplay its, its seriousness. And... Uh, Really, when you jettison that idea of sin, you can then quickly jettison the idea that sinners need salvation. And then from there, you get to, therefore, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross for sins. And that is where they end up. At that point, what's left of actual biblical Christianity? And the answer is, it's not to be found anymore. Um, Paul puts it well in 1 Timothy 5. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So again, selective belief. We do it personally. It's happening right now in the contemporary church a lot. And, and by the way, a lot of the stuff with progressive Christianity comes from a desire to ask questions and to wrestle with doubt. And sadly, there are some churches who are like, don't do that. If it says it, just, that's it. Don't wrestle. Don't look at things. Don't, don't engage. Don't, don't seek answers. That's not Clayton Valley Church. If you're here and you're looking for answers and you're wrestling through things, we are going to say, yes, do that. We would love to help you with that. But we're also going to say the source for the answers is right here. And they can be found. They're here. A saying that I'm particularly fond of is, is, you know, hit the Bible with everything you've got. Take the hammer out and start hammering away. Why? Because the Bible is an anvil that's damaged many a hammer. Go for it. And, and, find, and that's the other thing I would say. If you're in that place of wrestling and there are doubts, that's not a bad thing. But you've got to deal with it. Don't let them just hover around or sit. Chase them down. Chase them down in the scriptures. Chase them down in fellowship with brothers and sisters. This is a place for people to look and to ask and to explore. This is a place for people to wrestle this is also a place to dive into the truth and to get those answers. 
more could be said. But again, when, you, when we approach God with selective belief, not only do we reduce Christ's saving word, but secondly, and this is bold, but John says it, we make God a liar. When we engage in selective belief, we make God a liar. We find that in verses 9 and 10, where he says very clearly, hey, three witnesses. He's describing the three witnesses. And he goes, you, you receive their testimony. Well, guess what? God's testimony is greater. Now, he's referring back to the spirit, the water, and the blood. So he's saying, God's testimony is the spirit, the water, and the blood. There they are. And he's saying, you, reader, in a courtroom setting, if you heard three witnesses and the three witnesses agreed, you'd go, okay, that's a sound testimony. But God's witness, spirit, water, and blood, it's even greater than man's. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And the idea would be, how much more must we receive God's testimony? And he's testified what concerning his son. The one who believes, verse 10, has that testimony within. So there's this idea of you receive the testimony. <coughs> Excuse me. I have tested negative. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Feeling, oh, no, he coughed. I'm sorry. A little bit of residual. Um, but again, uh, the testimony comes and dwells within. And then he says, if you don't believe God's testimony, notice verse 10. The one who doesn't believe God has made him a liar. Why? Because he hasn't believed the testimony God, God has given concerning his son about Jesus. So again, the water and the blood, the full-orbed Christ, his entire ministry, his entire life, God has spoken about it. And if you're going to receive the testimony of three witnesses in a courtroom, then you better receive the three witness testimony from God. And if you don't, you're calling God a liar. And I think this does speak to another modern attitude that can be, and, and again, perhaps you find yourself here, you know, the agnostic perspective where someone's saying, I'm not completely rejecting the existence of God. I'm not saying that Jesus was a bad person. I'm open-minded. I just don't think there's enough information available to make a decision. And so a lot of times people will embrace that position in sort of a way of saying, hey, I'm not being mean. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying I'm open. You know, I'm, I'm open, but I don't know. It's not like I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. But this passage really kind of hammers that perspective as, as being essentially the same as the other. Uh, but, because here's the thing. Refusing to make a decision is a decision. And saying there's not enough information is really not a polite deferral. Instead, it's actually a bold rejection of what God has given and saying that, that what God's given is inadequate. We're told here that God's revealed more than enough. There's not one witness. There's not even merely two. There are three witnesses. There's an overwhelmingly clear, abundant testimony about who Jesus is and what he's done. In other words, God's given us his word. It's clear. He's given us the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. He's given us the reality of Christ's resurrection, a demonstrable historical fact. And, and people have to address that and deal with it. So to say, well, I don't really have enough to know, that's not true. As a matter of fact, the very creation itself is enough to show people there is a God. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes that 
Um, the entire creation is there declaring God's wisdom and goodness so that those who reject him are without excuse. So we need to be careful with that. Um, to not receive God's testimony here is to call him a liar. And so we need to be sure that we hear and listen and receive. So when we approach God with selective belief, we not only reduce Christ's saving work, we not only make God a liar, but lastly, and very importantly, we miss eternal life. We miss it. It goes right by us. And we find this out um, from verses 11 and 12. Notice God's testimony is this. He's given eternal life. And the life is in his son. That's a big deal. Uh, this idea of union with Christ is being brought out here. The, the fact that all who believe in Jesus are, are rescued, are saved, and are placed into an, a, a personal, intimate relationship with him. They are united with Jesus. And then verse 12 is a very categorical statement. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. And certainly for John, those first century Gnostics that we're being selective. Well, we believe the water part, the blood. Eh, not appealing. Doesn't make sense. I don't think so. John's saying, you've made God a liar and you have not received eternal life. And he's urging his readers, don't fall into that trap. Don't allow selective belief to cause you to miss out on eternal life. Uh, the phrasing here is very, very um, emphatic. Eternal life is actually placed in the very beginning of the phrase in the Greek. So he's bringing attention to that. Eternal life is the issue. And it's emphasizing the quality of this life. And you'll notice it's present tense. You have it now. Has given us eternal life. Eternal life doesn't start the day that either Jesus comes back and returns or the day that you go home to be with him. Eternal life starts today. It changes the way we live now. As we've said at other times, all who are in Jesus, all who are united with Christ are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, as the Spirit of God indwells us and empowers us to live differently, we really are empowered by resurrection life from the age to come to live in a new way. However, if we are going to live in the place of selective belief, Essentially, what we're told here is we are actually rejecting God's provision. We're rejecting him. We're calling him a liar and we're missing eternal life. But we're not just told about the dangers of selective belief here. We're also told about the joys of sound belief. So selective belief is to be avoided. But sound belief, solid, secure, real faith, brings much joy. When we fully rely on the full Christ, several things happen. First is this, you gain eternal life. You receive eternal life. Uh, if we kind of look at the fourth gospel account that, that the Apostle John also wrote, we find that the idea of having the Son from, from the vantage point of us who believe in him, is, is the idea of the Son indwelling us in some ways. And again, we talk about the Holy Spirit. It's his Spirit who's in, indwelling us. 
So he gives eternal life for those who believe in him. And Jesus talks about it and says, I, I give eternal life and, and they, they will be raised up on the last day. But he also refers to it in John 15 as abiding in him, right? So as the vine gives life to the branches, so those who are in Jesus abide or live or dwell or remain in him, they have that same life infused. And, 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 it's, and it's so important because we don't want to miss that and we don't want to, the joy of eternal life now, enjoying that now. Uh, for those of us who, who face trial, Many of us are facing physical difficulties right now. Some of us are looking at loved ones that might be going to eternity soon. Others of us are just sort of like just beaten down by life. You know, that that alarm goes off in the morning and you're like, do I have to swing my feet over the side of the bed? Really? Do I have to? Eternal life places everything in perspective. You have that life now. You anticipate the future. But because of being in Jesus, united with Christ, infused with his spirit, it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean, oh, all the trials just go away. You know, everything's just smooth as glass. No, it's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. But our hope is anchored in him. Not in the fleeting things around us. And, and that really brings us to the second thing that comes about as we enjoy the, the, the realities of sound belief. Not selective belief, but sound belief. We also find that we gain eternal life and also we overcome the world. We overcome the world. We find that in verse 4b. Look at what it says there. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, full orb belief. He's going to unpack that a little bit later. But it's a fascinating phrase. Uh, the word nikos is the word there for victory. We get Nike from it, right? So you think it's your favorite shoes, right? The victory swoosh, if you like those shoes. Nikos, victory. But here he has that term Lays through those two verses three times. So it's emphatic. It's victory. Literally, it's our victory that victories over the world. It's a stunning description. It's astounding. It's overwhelming. We need to see it. We need to celebrate it. How are we victorious over the world? What's he talking about with world? Well, if you flip back to chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, we talked about that before. He's already defined what the world is for us. Right? And it was described as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In trusting Christ, we are given victory over the things that are passing away in the world, we're told. The temporary things. We're also given ongoing victory over using our eyes as the basis for the only source of satisfaction we have. The desires that we would have. And, and, and all this that we have around us. As if that's all that there is. The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, this idea that I'm a self-made person. I'm a man or a woman who's, who's come up because of my own doing. I've, I've achieved, plotted, and carried out my own destiny. And the foolishness of all that, it's, all that's passing away. And by forgiving grace, we're victorious and that we're no longer under God's condemnation. By enabling grace, we're also victorious because day by day, 
We're growing in living out that victory. We're growing in walking by that powerful uh, resurrection power from the age to come in our lives through the Spirit of God. And so that the deeds of our body, we're putting those away. We're putting on that which is of Christ. Because truly we find in Him we live. In Him we're alive. That's what comes about by sound belief. And it's the absolute opposite of selective belief. And we dare not walk in our lives in that way. Uh, When I was in ninth grade, uh, some of you may have heard this account before, but uh, our class went to Disneyland. And it may shock you to know that I was in ninth grade a long time ago. Just just going to throw that out there. It might be shocking, but it's true. And we were on the bus, and uh, so the principal came on the bus and said, okay, people, um, be back at the bus at 3. If you're not here back at the bus, you better find another ride home. And then we all took off, right? Well, we're all walking around. We're having a great time. I remember in Octopia, you know, I was walking along, and some mom, sadly for them, or maybe it was a dad, I don't know, but they, they left a baby bottle uh, on the side of the, the line, right? No one wanted it, so I grabbed the baby bottle, and I'm... Driving on Autopia, you know how Autopia is like the track? It's like the track in the middle, you can't go anywhere. And these girls were behind me in the car, and so I would stop my car, they'd run into me, and I'd squirt them with the bottle, and then roll. You know, I, was, I was having a really good time that day. Kids, don't get any ideas from this. Do not do what I did. It was not... Anyway, so, uh, so I'm having a great time, you know, stop, squirt, they're laughing, I'm laughing. And then I stop, and I look, and there are these blue polyester pants right here. <laughs> and I reckon, hey, wait, that's the uniform of the workers of Autopia. And I look up, and there's a guy, he's like this. I'm like, give me the bottle, sure, come with me. Oh. <laughs> so I got kicked out of Autopia. I was told, you may not come back to Autopia. To be honest, I've been there since, and I'm still a little nervous about walking in. I just, <laughs> still a little nervous, you know what I'm saying? I'm kind of like, eh. am I okay? Can I come in here? I was kicked out. Anyway, uh, so three o'clock starts coming around. And I'm going, uh, I don't feel like going home. I talked to my friend Richie. Like, you want to go home? I don't want to go. Things are getting good. Well, our friend Sean had come, and he had his own ride. And he's like, hey, I'll give you guys a ride. And so here's what happened in our teenage brains. The principal said, if you're not here by three, you better find your own ride home. We did. We had a great time at the park. We probably stayed another two hours. Went to Sean's car. Drove home. Um, where he dropped us off, my friend Richie lived closer, so I walked with him to his house before I walked home. I walk, we walk into his house. His mom just lays into him. Have you ever been with a friend before and they're getting chewed out by their parents? I'm just standing there, I'm like, awkward. You know, this is awkward. And she's going on and on and on and on. And then she looks at me and she goes, and you! And I'm like, oh, here it comes, you know? She goes, your dad is on his way to Disneyland right now. And I'm like, oh, that can't be good. That can't be good. And you would think, you know, these days, we'll just call him and tell him that we're there. Hey, folks, this might surprise you, but in junior high, there were no cell phones for me, okay? So there was none of that. Dad was going down there. The bus got held up. They had Disney security looking for us everywhere. Yeah, I was asking for that for sure. 
Um, it was a long walk home from Richie's house that day, I'll tell you that. <laughs> My mom's first words, are you okay? Yes. And then uh, I got in trouble. <laughs> she, it was, but actually, it was, it was more uh, from the school side. So yeah, we uh, got suspended. And um, I, think I, I think we had to miss the ninth grade dinner dance. I, frankly, I think we were okay with that. I don't think we were fine. But whatever. The point was... It was a bad idea. So again, young people, don't do that. But what, what was my problem? Selective listening. Right? I heard what I wanted to hear. There were all kinds of other instructions about be back at three, be there at three, be there at three. There was stuff in writing about being back at three. There was stuff other teachers said about being back at three. Principal made one wise comment, and we took that thing and rode it to Cleveland. And by the end of it, we probably wish we lived in Cleveland. No, selective listening is a bad idea. But even worse, when we're dealing with God and the things of God. Selective hearing leads to selective belief. And selective belief is dangerous because we reduce Christ's saving work, we make God a liar, and we miss out on eternal life. But sound belief brings great joy. And in that, we gain eternal life and we overcome the world. Where are you at this morning? Are you being selective in belief? Turn away from it. It's dangerous. Embrace all that Christ is as revealed in the word of God. And know what it means to have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We pray that you would bring us to the place of seeing the areas where we get selective about what we hear, about what we follow, about what we do. We pray that your word in the hands of your spirit would transform us. Thank you for the joys of sound belief. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you that in Jesus, we have overcome the world. We praise you in him. And we look to you to do mighty things amongst us that the world around us would know you too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.